Welcome to It's Personal Finance Canada. I'm Christine Conway. And I'm Cameron Conway. And this podcast is a very personal look at personal finance in Canada. Welcome to It's Personal Finance Canada. I'm Christine Conway, here with Cameron Conway. And today is going to be a bit of a battle royale. That's right. It's Christine versus the thoughts and philosophies of David Ramsey. And boy, are you in for an earful today. My goodness. So I started this week picking up a book by Rachel Cruz called Love Your Life, Not Theirs. Now, full disclosure, when I borrowed the book, I didn't realize that Rachel Cruz was Dave Ramsey's daughter. Uh, And I did not realize I hadn't read a Dave Ramsey book in years, probably since my goodness, maybe 10, 20 years ago. He's been around for a long time. And of course, for those of you that don't know, Dave Ramsey is a huge anti-debt financial guru in America who sold, oh, I don't know what the number is, but I'm sure it's millions of books at this point in time. He has a very successful podcast as well, which full disclosure, again, I've never listened to. But um, I picked up her book and once I'd finished it, I picked up his book, The Total Money Makeover, because I'm like, I'm pretty sure I've heard some of these concepts before. And yes, lo and behold, it was largely the same system in both of the books. So I want to talk about this today. And I want to talk about it because a lot of people, even here in Canada, will be taking advice from fellows like Dave Ramsey. Well, that's right. You go to uh, Indigo Chapters or any other bookstore with a personal finance section, you will see several shelves worth of his stuff. So he is, of course, is also very popular in Canada, even though the advice he gives in the States doesn't always translate one-to-one in Canada, which is one of the reasons why we do the podcast and do what we do over at Broad Financial. So we want to kind of go through and see what actually works in Canada or even just in general, or even if it's sane or usable or right or wrong. Let's find out. Right. And I mean, the other thing we should mention here as well, Dave Ramsey and his daughter take it from a biblical perspective. So if you're reading his book, there are some Christian references in there as well, which is great. But again, just something I was surprised to see when I had picked it up. So you have to kind of filter through the author's perspective, which does flow through in some of his steps. And some of them are more principles based for that reason. Yeah. So if you go to like a Christian bookstore, he, he is usually one of the only popular names available in the personal finance section. So people in those circles are probably aware of this, but other people probably are not. And like I said, picking up a book on personal finance, I think it's very important to be aware of the author's filters. Even when we do this podcast show, I try and put disclaimers whenever there's any of my biases that are going to come through. And so I think it's just good to understand where an author is coming from and what they're going to be integrating into their framework. So, I mean, one place that you see this reflected is there's huge emphasis on giving. Uh, which is great, again, or the tithing principle, which is giving 10% of your income. There's also big, big, big emphasis on debt freedom, which is, of course, what Dave Ramsey is known for. So let's start today by talking through what his seven baby steps are. So this is the core material that you kind of find peppered through his book. In Rachel Cruz's book, she talked about seven money habits. And again, that's part of why I picked it up. I thought, ooh, more reading about habits. Nope, not actual habits. It's just another way to use the number seven with something you think will work. Well, yeah, or patterns of, not even patterns of behavior. I mean, it's just... It's it's a title. It's just a lot of these personal clients, a lot of these self-help books, they like having a number because it's something to grab a hold and grab attention of. But 
it comes down to what the actual content is, whether it's a number five, a number seven, or whatever else it could be. Okay, so Dave Ramsey's baby steps taken straight off the internet. <laughs> all right, here they are. Hey, don't knock the internet. We're on the internet too. Hey, okay, all right. We, we have to play nice and we have to share. So I'm taking this right off his website, which is RamseySolutions.com. So what are these seven baby steps? The first one is... If you are endeavoring to be debt-free, you should save $1,000 for your emergency fund. Baby step number two is to pay off all debt except your house using something called the debt snowball, which we'll talk about in greater detail because this is his probably his most core concept, I would argue, or one of the things he's most popular for. And it's very, very uh, controversial. So uh, certainly worth a bit of a discussion there. Step three is save a three to six month of expenses in a fully funded emergency fund. Four is invest 15% of your household income into retirement. Five, save for your children's college fund. Six, pay off your home early. And seven, build and give wealth. So, all right, Cam, are you ready to start the battle? Shall we dig in? Ding, ding. Ah, uh, here we go. Okay, so... The first thing I want to mention here is these, this type of advice is being given over a podcast. It's being given through books, stuff like that. Nothing wrong with those methods of distribution. He's just speaking very generally to a very broad and very diverse population. So one of, I think, the biggest critiques or one of the things that kind of stood out to me is while his methods are very specific I feel that some of that is almost too specific. You really can't fully address different people in different situations when you try and pigeonhole absolutely everyone into the same box. And my goodness, in my industry, you can do a lot more harm than good if you give advice to people that is not appropriate for their age or their income level or their time to retirement or time to other major goals like that. I like to call this being specifically generic, which can kind of help put you through a general idea, but you also need a lot more fine details to make sure a lot of the stuff works. Like even with us on this podcast, we will throw a few generalities out there, but it's also why we encourage people to actually call us and deal with us like, like we would as a client, because you can say one thing to one person, it'll do wonders for them, but it could wreck someone else's personal finance goals where everything is very detailed. Everything is, can be very nuanced and just saying, do these five things to absolute every single person in the general population will not work, which is a problem I have with a lot of these books, not just like his, but general personal finance and general, even self-help where even if you get like one person out of a thousand where the program works, you only talk about that one person, you ignore the other 999 people where the program didn't work for. Well, that's right. And I mean, I'll circle back. That's why we talk a lot about, and that's why I'm so interested in behavioral change, habit formation, things that can actually make a material long-term difference. But for today, we're talking about Dave Ramsey. So what we're going to do is we're going to dig into his program. And I will, I will say to his credit, I mean, he's obviously incredibly popular. And I mean, bad on me for not getting into his content more than I have. But what he does very, very well is he has motivated a large number of people to take action. And you can't fault him for that. And I think anytime you can get people to eliminate debt, of course, that's a marvelous thing. It opens, opens up a world of possibility for them and their future. But like I said, some of my qualms are more with how specific some of this stuff is. So 
So let's dig in. Step number one, saving for your starter emergency fund. That's great. Uh, I don't have any problems there. Uh, He also recommends saving it in something like a high interest savings account. So something that's not an active investment, which really just means if you need to pull it out and you have to sell it, could you sell it at a loss? Or would you have to sell it if the market was in a bad position where you don't have as much as you thought you would in there? That's really all that any recommendation for cash or high interest savings is trying to avoid. Yes, it's just something that is a step up from your everyday checking and savings account so we can get a couple more percentage. So instead of getting like zero point, I don't know, what is it? 0.3%, you probably get like three or 4% as market currently is right now in Canada, but it's just something that is easily accessible that won't fluctuate the market. That'll always just be sitting there hoping you don't need to use it, but it will be there. That's right. So no problem with step number one. Baby step number two is paying off all debt except your house if you're an owner using something called the debt snowball. So let's start by describing what the debt snowball is. Essentially what it is, is they are asking you to list every single debt that you have except your house. So you're going to write them all out. So you're going to write out the amount of the debt, you're going to write your payment, you're going to write the minimum payment, you're going to look at the interest rate, and essentially he recommends organizing them by order of balance from smallest to largest regardless of interest rate. And the idea is that you pay the minimum payment on absolutely everything except the smallest debt. And they kind of go full gladiator on this and say, go at it with a vengeance, go at it with everything that you've got, earn extra income if you have to pay off that debt. And Dave Ramsey and his daughter in their books, essentially they talk about how this is 80% behavioral, 20% actually what you're doing. Um, So their idea is they want you to kind of get that satisfaction that you get when you pay off a debt for the first time. It's supposed to be motivating. It's supposed to keep you going. That is all good and true. But my goodness, the math of this kind of breaks my brain a little bit. If I have a small balance on my line of credit at 5% and a much larger balance on my credit card at 20%, I I can't understand why I wouldn't be focusing on my credit card first. Yeah, I kind of get the idea where you kind of have that one little small victory, but at the same time, no matter how you feel about that small victory, your interest charges are always much more expensive than the dopamine you get from paying off that one small bill. Well, and that's the whole issue here. That interest is going to cost you more actual dollars out of your pocket, and it's going to cost you more actual time. So my advice would be just looking at this method of doing it. If you absolutely need that motivation to keep going, I would be talking to my lender. I would be consolidating my credit card onto my line of credit, trying whatever method I need to negotiate a lower rate if I have a good credit score, um, consolidating everything to the lowest possible interest. And then we have the power these days to split these things up. I mean, maybe you can have different sub accounts. Maybe you can have a different way of managing your debt so that you've got a smaller one first and then a medium-sized one and then a larger one if, if that's what you need to do. But I mean, when I pay off my line of credit, I can have as many sub-accounts as I want. So 
why couldn't I organize it so that I'm saving interest at a lower interest rate, but also get that little reward mechanism triggered in my brain by starting maybe with $1,000 or a $5,000 payout? Uh, He also says in his book, and this was in both of them, that they say they're kind of recommended payment back period is somewhere between 18 and 24 months. And again, (laughs) uh, um, maybe people in America have a lot less debt than we do here. I don't think that's the case. But hey, let's let's close our eyes to that for just a second. Uh, That number in and of itself can be quite unrealistic for a lot of people. Yeah, again, this is being specifically generic where you kind of throw a number out, but it's more of an ideal than an actionable goal because depending on your debt you could have it done in six months or it could take you six years really it just comes back to the intentionality of just trying to get the debt paid off and sometimes just applying their numbers could actually make things harder for yourself it could put unnecessary pressure on you or again it could just completely ignore the real world situation that you are in well that's it i mean any debt repayment so i understand in their concept you're paying the minimum on all debts except the one that you're attacking, right? And the one that you're attacking, you're throwing everything else that you've got at it. But it's completely ignoring the fact that everybody has a different budget and a different amount of cash flow available to attack these things. Not everybody is going to have the same capacity, even if they stop all of their fun stuff in their life and they cut themselves back to the core essentials, which is something that they talk about a little bit as well. Um, not everybody is going to have that same level of ammo to address a debt in a two-year time frame. And the thing that concerns me with this recommendation is that it tags along to a second recommendation about retirement savings where he says, and I couldn't believe this when I read it, that you should stop all retirement savings until you're debt-free. Now, My goodness, Um, this gives no credence to how old you are when you're doing this. I mean, if you're 20, sure, that would be great. But if you're 56, maybe not so great. Um, It also gives no kind of thought to how much you have saved already or how close you are to your retirement goals, or if you even have any retirement goals to speak to. So that, in my mind, is a very, very dangerous recommendation because the most powerful thing you can do for yourself is invest for retirement continuously throughout your whole life, even if it's a small, small amount. And the other thing that was concerned is he actually put in black and white that he recommends stopping all retirement contributions, even a match from an employer, until you're debt-free. My goodness. So uh, when I was doing my notes, I kind of wrote a big, what, (laughs) next to this. And I just, I can't. Because if there's free money on the table from your employer that is a negotiated part of your compensation package, would you give up some of your wages, Cam, to attack your debt? That makes no sense to me. Why would you give up money that your employer is designing to give to you for your future so that you can take a smaller sum, half of that, and apply it to debt? The math of that does not make sense. And again, breaks my brain a little bit. Yeah. And kind of going back to the 18 to 24 month thing, uh, this in a roundabout way, it kind of presents the first kind of cross border conflict with a lot of this advice where in this part, he's talking about it. Don't pay attention to your mortgage here. Well, 
in the states they run off of like a 2025 year amortization schedule so when, when they get a mortgage they're locked in for 2025 years it's not like in canada where we have to go through this whole cycle every single five years and every five years your mortgage amount could change and that can kind of throw a lot of this stuff out the window when you're trying to go through the way they recommend paying off all of your other smaller debts just because of how fluid our mortgage rates are even if you're fixed or variable well, that's right. And I mean, I read through some of their American content that doesn't apply to us today. But I mean, they are largely against ARM mortgages, which seem to be, I'm not 100% sure, but seem to be comparable to variable. So like Cam just said, a very, very different product with very different implications long term for your financial health. And we'll get into a little bit more of how they recommend doing your mortgage in a little bit. Okay, so back to Dave Ramsey's steps. We are going to go into baby step number three, uh, which is save three to six months of expenses in a fully funded emergency fund. We actually like this one. Love this one. Uh, emergency funds that are based on expenses are great. You can base them on your income net. You can base it on expenses, money out the door. Um, I love this. And I love the idea of people having a little bit of cash on hand to kind of help them out. I mean, we live in a society where people tend to substitute emergency savings for credit cards or for lines of credit. But I think there is and never will be a substitute for being able to meet an emergency, which is a true emergency, like your dryer breaks down or something goes wrong where you suddenly need a thousand dollars to take care of the situation or your car goes. I mean, what's the joke, right? A lot of people's bank accounts seem to be correlated to uh, how well their car is driving. <laughs> well, no, or when your check engine light uh, goes on, it, it kind of drains your bank account a little bit, right? Is that how it works? Yeah, essentially, especially right now, because more and more people are, are trying to avoid buying a new and used car altogether, which is why AutoZone stock is soared. It's suddenly shown up in a lot more of the portfolios we carry at, at the office. Well, that's right. And I mean, AutoZone, of course, one of the biggest retailers of car parts in the States. Okay, back we go to Dave Ramsey and his baby steps. Baby step number four is invest 15% of your household income into retirement. Again, <laughs> where did this number come from? I truly, I read the book. Uh, I don't know how he got this number. I wish I knew how he got this number. I wish I knew what their social security is. Maybe there's some kind of integration there that I'm not aware of. But again, I think this was originally uh, created over 25 years ago. So I'm assuming there would have been some changes to the social security program during that time. I mean, in our planning, we always look at government benefits like uh, old age security, guaranteed income supplement, CPP, as you're trying to figure out what you need. So I don't understand this one. And I don't understand it because 15% of income for a 56-year-old versus 15% of income for a 20-year-old, I mean, they're going to be different numbers. You're at different periods in your career. But what if the 56-year-old has $0 saved? Does she still only need to contribute 15% of her household income to her retirement if she wants to retire in the next nine years? I don't think so. So let me read this. So I will read this right off their website. It says, now you can shift your focus off of debts and what ifs and start looking to the road. This is where you begin to regularly invest 15% of your gross income for retirement. Because if you're still working at 67, it should be because you want to, not because you have to. 
And that was directly from David Ramsey's website. So again, this is the difference between a financial guru and a certified financial planner, where one of them can just kind of throw out a random number and have no consequence, or a certified financial planner can actually give you a real world number that'll help you meet your goals. That's right. And I think when you're talking about investing Oh, things like rates of return, things like percentage of your income saved, things like time to retirement, they all matter so, so, so much. And that's why you cannot just give a blanket number for everyone because some people will overshoot, some people will miss the mark completely, and some people will follow this religiously for however long since they picked up the book and be grossly underfunded, which in my profession is a huge liability. Yeah. And again, we're just kind of throwing numbers out there. I'm pretty sure that this save 15% is also tied to, I know I'm jumping ahead here. This is also tied to his goal to have a 12% return on your investments every single year. Yeah. Let's talk about that. Because if I were to today in 2023, run a financial projection for a client of mine, and I assumed a 12% rate of return, it would be a beautiful piece of fiction, let me tell you. Uh, our clients would love them because, my goodness, they're going to look great on paper. But the Financial Planning Standards Council would really not be very happy with me, uh, mostly because they set out guidelines that we have to follow when we do any kind of long-term projection. And retirement savings for people is as long-term as this stuff gets. So I have always deferred to a very, very conservative assumption for my longer term projections, especially the longer, the more conservative I will go because stuff happens. But like Cam just mentioned, Dave Ramsey is very, very adamant. And I've seen it in a couple places now that, and on his website, that you can earn a 12% on average return on your investment. Which again is being specifically generic in something that isn't really attainable. I go through hundreds and hundreds of different seg funds from eight different carriers all the time and finding funds that can meet that target with his recommended allocations are near impossible to find on a consistent basis which again is just more frustration on our end where yeah ramsey's got some good things and this is one of the more controversial things is going in with that assumption of you will always hit 12 percent, you will not i have I've been looking at funds where you can have like 3% one year, then negative 5%, and then plus 20%, and then negative 18%. This has been the last five years. So if you're going and expecting 12% every single year by following a very aggressive allocation amount without having to suffer through the downturns, because even just going through COVID, I have a handful of funds I've looked at in the last week where it had a great 2021 up like 15 to 20%. Now it's crashed back down like negative 10%. This just doesn't work in reality. And then again, this is just more financial guru speak. You expect something like that. Well, and it doesn't work in the income phase either, because when you're pulling money out, a withdrawal in a bad year has a compounded effect on your overall return. Like it's harder to dig up mathematically from a down year than it is if you're hitting all these good years. And the more aggressive you are in your allocation, the more risk you're piling on and that's fuel on the fire, right? Yeah. People don't realize this, but 
when you buy a fund, you're not just throwing money at it and thinking, oh, I threw $100 at it. I have $100 in this fund. No, you have $100 worth of units. And that unit changes value throughout the year, throughout the decade. So your $100 could have bought you 100 units one year. In a very good year, your 100 units could be worth $120. In a really bad year, your 100 units could be worth $70. So when you're doing your withdrawals and you pull it out at like a $70 year, you are losing value overall. Well, that's right. And when you use averages like his 12%, you're basing it on a specific period of time. And when we go through difficult or unusual periods of time, like we just have with COVID, like we did in 2008, I mean, if you want to go back to things like the Great Depression, oh my goodness, the more bad cycles that we we go through, it does affect return expectations. And that's why places like FP Canada, when they produce their expectation guidelines, the rate of returns that we have to use as financial planners in Canada here. Um, what that means essentially is when you've had too many bad years, they will downgrade the rate of return that we are able to use to remain compliant in our long-term projections. So to be saying 12% flat for years and years and years and years, in my mind, doesn't adjust for the fact that things have changed and things have changed materially. But I want to read a quote, which Again, I think I dropped my phone after I read this. So it says, and I quote from his book, uh, The Total Money Makeover, you are secure and will leave a nice inheritance when you can live off 8% of your nest egg per year. If you make 12% on your money average and inflation steals 4%, 8% is a dream number. If you make 12% and only pull out 8%, you grow your nest egg by 4% per year. That 4% keeps your nest egg and your income ahead of inflation till death do you part. You get a cost of living raise from your nest egg every year. If you can live with dignity on $40,000, you need a nest egg of only $500,000, end quote. I would say at this point in time that he is very well-intentioned. But my goodness, advice like this, in my view, is very, very dangerous because you could be setting people up to have less than they need. And the worst time to find out that you have less than you need is when you're already retired. So if you are making decisions based on expectations that are not based on what has actually occurred, oh dear, that could be a world of hurt. Yeah, so I did some digging. So let's just give them the FB Canada recommended rates of returns that they have right now. So this was published in August 2022. So the recommended guidelines they're telling you financial planners to, to go off of is for fixed income, a gain of 2.8%, Canadian equities, a gain of 6.3%, emerging markets, a gain of 7.7%, and gains in foreign developed market equities is 6.6%. Now you're going to have a blend of these, right? So it has to be blended based on the percentage that you're invested in each category and your rate of return will be re adjusted accordingly. So you could very well have a three or 4% rate of return, or let's say you're in a balanced fund, which is half in fixed income, which is, we've got to illustrate, what was that? 2.8%. So half of your portfolio, we can only assume that 2.8%. And then in the other half, if it's 6%, you're going to have to average that down. 
So on the back of that, let's actually look at what Dave Ramsey's recommended allocation is. And as someone who spends all day long on BNN and picking through funds and doing research and reading market calls and going through portfolio manager's notes, this is hard to read. I think I cried a little, but let's, um, let's view it as this is his allocation. I would love to say it's not a recommended allocation, but to be very honest, I don't know because he's publishing this as what he does and he's setting himself up as the guru. So uh, with a grain of salt, please. So let's look at what he has written down in his uh, book. So he has 25% in growth and income funds, which he categorizes as large bl large cap or blue chip. He has another 25% in a growth category, which he categorizes as mid cap funds. Another 25% is in what he calls aggressive growth, which is small cap and emerging markets. And he also has 25% in international. So my concern here is if Granny Brown is reading this recommendation in her retirement, this is not going to be an appropriate allocation for her. This might be an appropriate allocation for the 20 year old that's starting out. Uh, maybe it's an appropriate allocation for someone who's quite aggressive in their 30s or 40s. But as you age, typically you want to pare down the risk, the market risk on your asset allocation. And the stock to bond mix is how you do that. Uh, I don't see a mention of bonds anywhere in here. I think he's just using his cash from his emergency fund as a buffer. And I think if I've read this correctly, and I mean, I'm not sure if I have, but it appears his portfolio is all in funds invested largely in stocks. Yeah. And like we said, even with us, all, most of our clients wouldn't qualify for this because there's no fixed income. And it's really just a mash of very high risk, very aggressive funds. Because I've seen so many funds that are more targeted towards the, the mid cap growth and the emerging markets growth. And a lot of them have had like three-year losses of like 15 to 20%. So this doesn't factor in how people will handle a downturn like we're going through right now. Unless you're a hyper-aggressive that's seen the downturn and saying, hey, I'm going to put all my money in this right now while it's cheap. But that is not the larger part of the population. Well, that's right. And long-term averages that are higher are based on you hanging on to an allocation during those bad years and not selling it, right? So if you do sell it in a bad portion of time in the market, that can negatively affect your own personal rate of return versus what the index's average might be, as example. Okay, let's move along here. We kind of got sidetracked. Baby step number five is save for your children's college fund. I think that's pretty self-explanatory. Um, their U.S. recommendations are different than ours, so we're not going to go into any of that. No, again, this is a kind of cross-border conflict. But then again, if you are in Toronto, Vancouver, you can just replace the college fund and the pay off your home because of the price differences where in the States, just getting a basic bachelor's is north of $100,000, but their housing is generally cheaper than it is here. But still, again, we support this concept of, yeah, get your kids an RRSP, get savings, get your government grants, and just kind of prepare them for what's coming next. That's right. So we'll move right on to baby step number six, which is pay off your home early. Now, this is kind of mired in what their mortgages look like, which Cam talked about a little bit before. And like I said, their mortgages are completely different products than what ours are here today. But the author's views, and I mean, I'll even step back to Rachel Cruz's book for this one and read a quote. Uh, so I quote, 
When it comes to purchasing a home, the absolute best option is the 100% down plan. Not 100% financing, 100% down. That's right, paying cash is the best way to buy a home. End quote. Oh, geez, Cam, sorry. I don't have, what, $2 million sitting under my bed right now? (laughs) Oh, dear. I mean, I think in context, what I did after I read that is I put down the book, flipped to the front cover, and said, when was this published? 2016. Okay, so a few years off. I mean, didn't go through all of COVID, but I mean, unless their prices are significantly less than ours, that is very, 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 very unrealistic for a lot of people today. Uh, Specifically when you're looking at, I think one of the examples she gave, the house cost was like $150,000. So that is significantly different uh, than I mean, of course, we're in a high cost of living area right now. We live in BC. We live in the lower mainland. Uh, Certain parts of the prairies, of course, it'll be a little bit better, but it's definitely not what it was prior. Well, exactly that. What $150,000 will barely count as a down payment in a lot of areas in Canada now. So again, this is another... Well, this is the big cross-border conflict with Dave Ramsey's material. Well, and let me read another quote from Rachel Cruz's book because, again, I just couldn't. Um, Okay, Uh, and I quote, I can break all of this down into one simple rule of thumb. Write it down, learn it, live by it. When it's time to buy a house, pull this rule back out and make sure you stick to it. Here it is. When it's time to shop for a mortgage, go for a 15-year fixed rate mortgage with at least 10% down and a monthly payment of no more than 25% of your take-home pay. And that's when I shut my book. (laughs) So, (laughs) end quote. Um... E, they recommend not buying a house until you're fully out of any other form of debt and have your three to six months of expenses in emergency funds. They're also recommending a shorter timeline to pay down your mortgage, 15 years, which can be a good thing, but it means your payments will be much, much, much higher than a 25 or a 30 year mortgage, which is why you need a low balance of your mortgage, like $150,000 or $200,000 to make this con concept work. In an environment where mortgages or housing prices are significantly elevated, this just plain does not work. So for housing, I think in general, you have to have an expectation that this debt is going to be with you longer than uh, is suggested in that book, even if you have good intentions. We've talked about mortgages at length, where we've kind of distilled for you that prepayments are much more advantageous at the beginning of a mortgage in Canada through to the midpoint, much less so from the midpoint to the end. So we can still shorten our time horizons on our mortgage. There can be a big financial benefit to do that, but you have to look at factors like the size of your mortgage and the size of the savings you need for your retirement, as well as your age. Yeah. And the other big thing we can probably say is to, if possible, resist the urge to re-advertise it. It's not worth that couple hundred dollars a month less in payments if they're going to tack on tens of thousands of dollars of interest and more years onto your mortgage. So that's kind of one thing we can try and fit into this is just resist the urge to reamortize and drag it out longer than you need to. Because like I said, that couple hundred dollar a month difference is going to be worth a lot more in lost spending money and more interest charges than it's worth. That's right. And we've talked about this concept on prior podcasts as well. The only time we recommend extending an amortization is if you're going to lose your house. And that's literally your last resort 
before a bankruptcy or before a situation where you could not otherwise survive. That's the only situation where you do it and then you get serious about the budget and figure it out. Uh, or you work with a professional who can help you figure it out. But otherwise, yes, nothing but pain, nothing but more money going to the banks, and nothing but a lost opportunity for yourself. So the last of Dave Ramsey's baby steps is baby step number seven, which is build wealth and give. Now, they are operating under the concept that you are now completely debt-free. So you have no more debt, you have your emergency fund, you have your 15% of your income going towards your retirement savings. And now it's time to build. Um, Their definition of build was interesting as well. I mean, it focused on things like having fun, so more spending money, uh, additional investing beyond the 15%, and also giving, which is just the concept of giving back a portion of the income that you earn. 10% is kind of the tithe that's talked about in the book. But of course, there's advocation for doing more than that if you're able to do so. And so again, this is something that we do endorse. It's getting to the point where you can be realistically debt-free, getting things set up for your kids, helping out the community, be it through religious organization or other forms of help. But again, it's if you have the available funds to kind of help out if you can and to get your kids ready and to enjoy life if you can get through the big mountain of debt. That's right. And I think that's probably a good time to sum up Dave Ramsey's program. I mean, he seems to have a lot of books out there. He seems to have a lot of uh, different forms of media and things like that. He's got something called his Financial Peace University, not something I'm familiar with. Uh, Like we said, he's got his podcast. He's got all that other content. I would say if you're listening to any expert, ourselves included, uh, just be aware of the author's biases. And when you go through programs like this that are written for a very large population and that are not individually tailored, just please talk to a professional about how this can impact your plan. So overall, some good, some bad. Like I said, the best thing about Dave Ramsey in my mind is he has been able to motivate a very large number of people to take positive action. So that is very, very good. But you do have to kind of filter through his advice and take some of it with a grain of salt. Yeah, it's one thing to get someone up and motivated and going to take those first five or six steps, but you need to get beyond that. And I think that's where extra training, extra help comes in, where, yeah, it's good to kind of get off the couch, take a couple of steps, but then you need someone to help support you go the rest of the way. Well, that's exactly it, right? A lot of retirement planning is quite technical. I mean, my goodness, I know nothing about plumbing. I'm not going to try and fix my sink by myself or my toilet. I would call a professional. Uh, This is the rest of your life and your future. I don't think it's something that you necessarily would want to do following the five steps you found on YouTube or something like that, right? So... I will leave it at that for today. I hope you enjoyed. I was, I guess, maybe a little bit more excited or a little bit more um, challenged by this material than I usually am, just because we always measure downside risk and I am always worried about people not getting correct information or misinformation. Yeah, and if you have had any experience kind of working through David Ramsey's programs, whether it be positive or negative, just head on over to our Facebook page, It's Personal Finance, in our discussion group there, and kind of let us know what your experience has been going through his material and if it has helped you or kind of made things more difficult. We're legitimately curious to see how you have interacted with this material before. Oh, sure. And if you became debt-free in the process, we applaud you. I mean, there is good here. 
It's just making sure that you don't base your future on incorrect assumptions that may have been fine in the past that are just maybe slightly out of date today, uh, more than slightly. So uh, I'm going to wrap it up now. Thank you for joining us. And as always, like Cam said, reach out to us on the Facebook page or to us directly if you're in the BC area and want to speak to a financial planner. We're at Braun Financial, braunfinancial.com. And until next time, take care. And all the best.